If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello and welcome to another edition of Shattered Lives. I'm Paul Healy, Chief Reporter with the Irish Daily Star. We all know policing could be difficult wherever officers work, and it's sometimes dangerous. But imagine having all the normal stresses of being a police officer, and on top of that, constantly having to live with the real threat of a terror attack. That's exactly the situation that some 6,700 officers in the police service of Northern Ireland face today and every day. Today, Irish Daily Star crime correspondent Michael O'Toole interviews Liam Kelly, the chairman of the Police Federation for Northern Ireland, the representative body for most PSNI officers. Michael spoke to him in the wake of the murder attempt on Detective Chief Inspector John Caldwell in Oma, County Tyrone, last month. Mr Kelly gives us a fascinating insight into what it's like to live under threat and how it affects every aspect of officers' lives, from where they live to the precautions they must take before they even get into their car to drive to work. Today's pod is a real eye-opener. Liam Kelly, Chairman of the Police Federation of Northern Ireland, thanks for joining us on Shattered Lives today. Uh, good morning and great to be here. Now, uh, Liam, as I was explaining to you off-air, our pod, uh, the Irish Daily Star's crime pod, is very popular, is popular with members of Gardaí. So one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today is just to explain what it's like being a police officer in Northern Ireland, because it's only a few miles away, but in many senses, it's a completely different world. And I'm, I'm allowed to say that because I'm from the north myself. And as will become clear in this interview, I, I would have an interest and a knowledge. And I grew up in North Belfast throughout the whole of the Troubles. So I'm not saying that in a sort of the north's a million miles away. I'm just saying policing, there are two different parts of the world because of the, the extra stresses and strains the police officers have. So I'm just trying to really go through that for members of the public who are listening, but also for Gardaí, lots of Gardaí listen to the pod, as I said. So hopefully by the end, everybody will have a better understanding what it's like to be an on-the-ground police officer in Northern Ireland. Well, hopefully I can help with that. Now, one thing we might start off with, the, the Police Federation of Northern Ireland, I believe that that the, represents set, uh, multiple ranks within the police, the PSNI. Would that be right? Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, we, we represent what are termed the federated ranks, which is your student officer, um, the constables, sergeants, inspectors, and chief inspectors. So uh, that real, real range there from student officer through to chief inspector rank. And does that cause, so say for example, I'm used to dealing with the Garda Representative Association, which you'll know, and that deals with members of Garda rank, and then there's the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors, and then there's a, a, a separate association for, for, for superintendents. So does that cause any difficulties? Because you're having supervisors in the same union or the same association as frontline constables. Um, Well, not really, because we have a bit of an eclectic mix. Uh, We have our our representatives who who cover all those uh, areas of business, but the vast majority of our representatives 
uh, would be they've got constable rank. Uh, and, and really uh, having inspectors and chief inspectors as part of our, our remit actually smooths the past when they're having discussions with the more senior management in the place. So, uh, again, I, I look upon it as a, it's not a challenge. Uh, it's actually a, a, it assists us uh, with, with what messaging we're trying to do, I mean, right through to the chief constable. Okay, so we're going to be talking about this interview is largely based on the attempted murder of Detective Chief Inspector John Caldwell a few weeks ago and just the, the attendant issues and threats that PSNI officers of all ranks, I suppose, have to live with on a daily basis. But just before we go there, I presume that you as an association deal with similar issues, say, to the GRA or the Police Federation in London, the Met in London. You have to deal with discipline. You have to deal with everyday welfare of your officers. Yeah, I mean, most most federations are set up for the welfare and efficiency of of their uh, of their particular areas, and um, so we have a lot of commonality uh, with with all our, our, our colleagues in uh, in Garda Shikona as, as well as uh, right across the United Kingdom. Um, we're also involved in uh, collectively in uh, what's called Eurocop, um, which is a combination of our colleagues right across Europe, uh, and that's useful as well because it obviously gives us a, a different lens in looking at you know things that are happening. In, uh, internationally, as as well as um, you know, instead of having a tunnel vision of what we're looking at within ourselves, within our own small words. So, atten- so separate from the attendant issues that I would argue are probably unique to the PSNI in Europe and definitely in, in Ireland and Britain. Anyway, would you say that police officers in in Ireland and Britain and Europe, as part of Eurocop, y'all effectively, apart from the terrorist issues, y'all effectively have the same problems and the same issues? Would that be fair? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is fair. Uh, I mean, the, the primary issue that uh, certainly the, the the most prevalent issue at the minute for for PSNI is in relation to budget, um, because the budget isn't effective enough. We have a, a real issue at the moment in relation to resource. Uh, I mean, we stop recruitment. Uh, our numbers are are dropping. We're actually at the smallest level the PSNI has ever been. Uh, and I say as we're approaching twenty five years of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, you know, our, our police service should be at around 7,500 people. Uh, at the minute, it's sitting around 6,700 and dropping rapidly. Uh, so, uh, which is quite strange because when I look at the investment, for example, in Garda Shikona, uh, they have a commitment from the government to increase Garda, but they're having an issue in relation to recruitment as well. So it's not that they haven't got the money, uh, it's because the job itself uh, isn't as uh, you know, amenable as, as people have looked at in the past. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. Uh, one of them is salary, uh, paying conditions, uh, the restrictions that are placed on police officers in relation to uh, what they do both on and off duty. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of commonality there uh, with, with what it is. And uh, I, say, I say the difference that we have is that we have a budget going backwards and everyone else seems to be having a budget that's going forward. So, I put up in a various position. I, I, can, I can just imagine all the guardy listening to this, nodding their heads and going, yep, yeah, that sounds like our job. One issue that has started to affect the Garda Shikana particularly in the last couple of years, and it was particularly bad last year, is not retirements, but resignations. Is that an issue in the PSNI? Yes, it is. Uh, it's a major issue, particularly the, the more junior officers um, who have been leaving primarily over, over terms and conditions, uh, and their, the amount of work uh, that they've had to do. And the, sort of the, the, one of the, the principal issues we've had coming out of the COVID pandemic uh, is, that, is that police officers have been vilified in, in some regards. And, and so people are, are, are looking at what their pay and remuneration is and thinking to themselves, could I do something else that's a, you know, a lot less hassle than I'm doing now and, and be valued more with what it is? So we have seen a spike in, in the amount of officers who are leaving, and not only, in, in as you mentioned, in retirement, um, but at the bottom end. But, but more concerningly, we've seen a number of officers leaving mid-service 
you know, who have already maybe got 15 years in the police service and have decided that policing is no longer for them. Uh, and there are a number of reasons for that. But, but primarily it comes down to that work-life balance, um, you know, which is absolutely enormous at the minute for Ingarda Shikona. I mean, only yesterday, the, the uh, Garda sergeants and inspectors had a had day of action in relation to the duty rosters uh, that were uh, put in place um, primarily for the COVID pandemic. But going forward, they have a real issue about the, a new proposal that uh, the commissioner has put in. Again, we, we have similar problems in, in Northern Ireland. We had a, a protector shift roster that was brought in for COVID as an emergency pattern, uh, and then it was taken away quite quickly. Uh, and at the minute, the organisation are looking because of reduced resource and, and reshaping how the shifts work, particularly for those frontline officers. And with, with that uh, emergency roster, I think it's called the COVID roster down here, would that have been 12 hours? Tours of duty? Yeah, yeah. it, it was primarily what, what was termed a four-on, four-off duty pattern, a, a mix of early shifts and, and night shifts, which were up to 12 hours long at a time, that's correct. And one thing I'll say, speaking to Gardy, particularly on what's called on the regular, so the front line, I think they're called response units in Britain anyway, they really liked the 12 hours because they had more time off and it gave them more regularity. Would that be the same with the PSNI? Yeah, well, it's a, I mean, it's a bit of a mix compared to the perm, but certainly the, the feedback that we were, we were getting from, from our um, response officers who were working the shift um, was that uh, they were definitely having a lot better work-life balance because they could plan better because the rest days weren't being cancelled in between. One of the other things around it is we, our response officers work on a five-shift system pattern uh, and, and a four-on-four-off, it changes to a four. So what you immediately end up with is, is in around 20% more people uh, in, the, in the sections. And because they had more sex, more people, they had more resilience, which means they could share the workload a bit more. And then I say the, 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 big, the big key in this was getting the four days off uh, in a row, which, uh, which was unheard of under other, other patterns. So just before we get on to the, the issues that I wanted to talk to you about today, one final question on this. One of the issues that I'm hearing from Guardian on the ground is the lure of going to work in Australia, particularly the Western Australian police. Is that an issue? Are, are, are constables or officers from the north heading over in numbers? We, we have. In the past, we, had, we did have a number of officers who, who I know, uh, personally know a few officers who are currently living and working in Australia. Um, it used to be that PSNI officers could take what was termed a career break. Uh, and then actually try it before they, they made a, a decision to do it, but that was that was changed um, because of the amount of officers that were that were doing that at, at that time. Um, I don't think we have such a, a high level now. I know certainly our UK, um, particularly the Met uh, and some of the services in the in the southeast of London have a massive. There's a massive recruitment drive. I mean, I heard a number last week, and around 800 officers had applied for for Queensland Police, for example. And because of the remuneration package and the you know, change of lifestyle and, and everything else. So, uh, yes, it definitely is a lure uh, to, to look away. But I think in, in Northern Ireland, primarily most of our uh, officers, um, I mean, we do, we do seem to have a particularly senior officers. Not only have they went down to Garda Shikona, uh, we've also yeah. Police Scotland. Uh, in Police Scotland, we have, you know, we have four of the of the senior police officers in Scotland are from Northern Ireland and, and serve most of their careers in Northern Ireland. So, so we do have the ability to, to move around, absolutely. But uh, in, in more recent times, I haven't seen such a big drive of, of officers here leaving to go you know, to the other side of the world. Yeah, I think I saw uh, uh, on the Police Scotland Twitter page the other day, there was, I think it was a female chief superintendent was sworn in from the PSNI, got a very senior job in Police Scotland. So obviously there is that 
cross-functionality or cross-pollinization in that regard? Yeah, we actually we actually have four assistant chief constables um, working in Scotland. We were all previously uh, chief superintendents in, in PSNI, and that's just over the last three years. And, and as Gardy will know, there are an awful lot of senior PSNI people, have, including Dory Harris himself, but there's a, you know, Assistant Commissioner Roberts, uh, and quite a few have, have come down south. Anyway, so I wanted to talk to you principally about the, the attempted murder of DCI John Caldwell. Now, I think, and the effects from after that, I think that was about a month ago, now, uh, or maybe three or four weeks ago, without breaking his, breaching his privacy. Can you give our listeners an update as to how he's doing? Yes, I, I can. Um, he's, he's still in uh, intensive care uh, in Old McElvin Hospital. Uh, he's stable, uh, but he, unfortunately, he still remains heavily sedated due to the injuries he sustained. Uh, he was he was shot four times um, at close range into his torso, so he sustained uh, some some uh, major organ damage. And, and really, the, the the challenge going forward uh, for him is um, once they they start to bring him out of that sedation, uh, just to see whether he can cope uh, and his body can cope with the trauma uh, that he suffered. So he's, he's by no means. Um, out of the out of danger yet, um, but he is at present as things stand in a stable condition. Because I, I remember on the night of the, of the attempted murder, obviously, and we'll get into this. DCI Caldwell would have been very well known in the Republic because he was very active in the organised crime front and things. And an awful lot of guards I was in contact with on the night would have known him, and they were very, they were. I mean, I think it's fair to say that they're very, there were very serious concerns for his life immediately after the shooting. Yeah, absolutely. And um, what I can say while, while I'm on here, the, the amount of uh, contact that we've had from post-retired and serving guard officers who have offered their support uh, in around what has happened has been overwhelming, uh, to be honest, and, and re- really, really, really good to see. And that's one of the things that, that some people forget about the, the police family. You know, despite the fact that we, are, we wear different uniforms and work for different governments and things, we do have uh, that commonality with each other and, and the respect we have for each other about what we have to do. Uh, and the business, so he, as you say, there, John was was very well known, uh, not only within PSNI circles, but he obviously he was involved in, in organised crime, which which you know borders don't uh, you know don't stop that. So we had very close contacts with your detective cadre in, in the Garda Shikona, uh, and again, as I said, there's there's been lots of uh, contact with with PSNI at, at very senior levels, uh, offering support and assistance to John as well. John would have had a certain profile. Before the shooting, would he have been regarded within the force, let's say, as a heavy hitter investigations wise, one of the top investigators within the force? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, John John has been a police officer for 26 years. He's been a senior investigating officer um, within our our crime operations branch um, for a considerable period of time. And probably if you look back over particularly the last 10 years of of high profile uh, criminal and, and murder terrorist investigations, John Caldwell's name was 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 he was the person uh, that was the investigator in that, and he has brought some uh, pretty serious people and offenders to, to justice um, because of that. And just we know that the uh, the new IRA claimed responsibility, but I know it was certainly news in the last couple of weeks. And, and I have to say, as someone who is from the north and is a crime reporter and keeps an eye on these things, I was quite shocked, and I think a lot of a lot of people were that that members of the Protestant community were arrested as part of this investigation. Did that come as a shock to you and your members? Um, no, no, not at all. Because I mean, the, the reality around organised crime is that it, it, it doesn't matter. Religion doesn't make any difference. These people are, are in in this sort of work to for one thing, for for betterment for themselves, and primarily around money and finance. And so they can put aside any of their their supposed differences, and um, when they have a common gain, 
Uh, so no, it, it didn't surprise me whatsoever. And again, although this investigation was primarily focused uh, on the, the new IRA, uh, the, I mean, tags and, 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 and titles are, are, are merely flags of convenience for these people. Um, I say it doesn't really matter. Their only loyalty is to themselves and, and, the, and the finance and their ill-gotten gains. So would you believe that that really is, I'm not going to say a cover, but it's maybe a fig leaf to hide the, the, their true raison d'etre, which is criminality? Well, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the, the, the terrorists have, have to do, have to engage in criminality to finance what they're doing. So, uh, I mean, that's that's deeply wedded uh, with each other. I mean, I don't think anybody's in any doubt about that. Okay. So, can you talk to us a bit, Liam? And this may be a silly question, but it's the answer that's important. What effect did the attempted murder of DCI Caldwell have on your members? Well, I mean, I, I think the reality is it's in a real shockwave out uh, across uh, PSNI because... I mean, although we've had a, a number of attacks on, primarily on duty, uh, I mean, what I'm talking about there in Derry City and Straban and, and in around November, December time, we had a couple of attacks on patrols, uh, uh, you know, explosive device left outside a police station. Um, but I mean, this year as a close quarter shoot uh, is has, has, has something that we hadn't seen, you know, perhaps into the 1980s, 1990s. Um, it was a real throwback uh, to the worst times of, of the troubles. Um, so... Uh, I'll not say our, our officers have been complacent over a period of time, but basically, particularly in the off-duty, uh, there's from certainly a, a, a veil of safety uh, or a feeling of safety uh, that officers could engage in, in, in whatever off-duty activities they wanted to do uh, and, and not be in fear uh, that they were being targeted or looked at in relation to that. Now, that's not to say that, that you know, traditionally, the, the, the terrorists, I say, have, ne- have never gone away, unfortunately. Um, you know, and as we approach that 25 years of Good Friday Agreement, it's incredible well, that we're still talking about them still being being active uh, and doing what they're doing. Um, but what, what we have traditionally seen uh, on a sporadic basis over the last number of years was the, um, for example, the on-their-car booby traps being left at police officers' cars at their home addresses or, uh, you know, at, at places of leisure. Um, and, and that was the, the tactic, whereas this here, in my mind, was you know, a complete escalation. You know, for two people, they approach someone uh, in the car park of a, of a leisure complex uh, with handguns and indiscriminately shoot at him and others, uh, you know, was, was, was just a, was shocking. And, you know, you're quite right. Look, just to give, I was speaking to you earlier off air, but just for our listeners, that most of our listeners know I'm in, from, Bel- from Belfast. But just about my background is I was born in North Belfast in 1970. So I lived through the whole thing. I mean, you'll know this, that in North Belfast, I think it's something like 25% of all victims of the Troubles were killed within a square mile of where I was living. So it was pretty heavy. So I grew up with this every day. And I started working, my first job was in the Irish News, uh, which would be a nationalist paper in Belfast. And I was working there in 1994 on and off until 1997. And just what you were saying, I, I remember the last, RUC officer to be murdered was a constable Frankie O'Reilly and he was killed by a loyalist blast bomb I think it was 1998 around the whole marches was it yes but then the, the, the previous two officers to be murdered were murdered just what you're talking about they're up close and personal they were shot as they were on patrol in Lurgan now I, I remember I, I, I was working in the ICU and I covered that so I think that was June 1997 so th- the threat has always been there but you're quite right it does bring back sort of memories and one of the things I was going to say is I moved from the Dublin, from Belfast down to Dublin in 1997. So the RUC was still in existence. And one of the things that really struck me when I moved down here was how 
the guard members of the Guardi Shikana were intrinsic parts of the community. So whether they were training the GAA teams, they were involved in rugby, everybody knew who the guards was. Now, by the very nature of the threat and other issues, I would my recollection is, especially in my my community, the Catholic community, you know, RUC officers effectively had to keep their heads down. Are we going back to those days that really? you know, the threat is so serious now that they have to sort of retrench within themselves? Well, I think that's what the terrorists are seeking to achieve um, by, by the attacks on John and, and, you know, the others that we've seen. Uh, that's, that's, the whole, that's the whole purpose of terrorism in relation to policing, is what they're trying to do is to uh, exclude and put a wedge between the police and the community. Uh, and, I mean, that, that's actually been taken to a, a further level last week when we had a, a further threat, uh, which was specific against police officers' families. As opposed to the officers themselves, uh, and again, that's about doing fear, changing uh, you know what PS and I are doing. And I suppose it's a it's a reflection that that our officers, both PS and I and RUC, over a period of time, um, have absolutely been involved in all sorts of community projects in, in their in their own time. I mean, we have people volunteering for all manner of things, whether that be search and rescue, coaching, uh, mentoring, you know, working with church groups, all all sorts and everything that everyone else in the community gets involved in. You definitely have police officers there. The concern being, and uh, what we have seen over over time, uh, I mean, historically, police officers wouldn't be very forthcoming about their occupation, and it was for that very reason is that they could find themselves being being targeted, um, because they set patterns and set. For example, if you're a, as John Caldwell was, if you're a football coach and you're turning up every say Monday and Wednesday night in the same place, you know, week on week, year on year. Uh, it doesn't take a, you know, it doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to work out um, that you're going to be there at a specific time, uh, and more likely than not, you're not going to be carrying your your personal protection weapon um, because there's obviously risks associated with that too. If particularly if you're uh, if you're coaching football, for example, you, you wouldn't be really running around with a gun on you. That's the that's the scenario. So terrorists look for vulnerability. They look for patterns. Uh, and I say this this whole uh, attack on John uh, and the upsurge in activity that we've seen. Uh, is, is basically designed to try and, and, and marginalise uh, our police officers uh, and, and dehumanise them in some regards to, to sort of say they're not a member of the community and they're not welcome. But, I mean, the reality around it is we are a member of the community uh, and we are welcome with open arms in all areas of, of Northern Ireland because people recognise uh, that what our commitment is, both on a, on a day-to-day basis with our duties for what we do for society, but they also recognise that there's a lot of uh, transitional skill set that comes across into the other areas there. And diversionary things, you know, working with young people in particular, to, to, to sort of divert them away from a, from a life potentially of, of crime or, or other ways and, and show them that there is a better way. Now, earlier you mentioned that there'd been a significant uh, outpouring of messages from members of Angarda Shia retired uh, and serving. One of the things that struck me was the, the cross-community unity and condemnation about the murder attempt on uh, DCI Caldwell. Was that something that heartened members members of the force? Well, uh, I mean, yeah, absolutely it was because, I mean, as you're aware at the moment in Northern Ireland, we have no functioning government. Uh, and in fact, you know, every day in the news seems to be focused on, on people um, clashing over their differences uh, of opinion, uh, their differences of, of mindset in relation to what they think a government should look like. So it was actually heartening, very heartening to have the major leaders of the major parties standing side by side in, in condemnation uh, about what had happened and recognising, uh, you know, that area that, that we've been talking about at the outset there in relation to the PSNI's budget 
I mean, a reduced budget has reduced PSNI's capability and capacity to deal not only with organised crime, um, but to deal with terrorism. Uh, so it's important that our our, our leaders, our, our governmental leaders, are able to actually advocate uh, for us uh, and uh, you know speak to both UK and Irish governments uh, in relation to commitments that were made in the new decade, new approach uh, from mm-hmm. 2020, uh, which which basically ring fence that that PSNI would would have a minimum of 7,500 officers. And that hasn't happened. You said it's six thousand seven hundred at the minute. Yeah, we're sitting at six thousand seven hundred at the moment, and you know, by the end of, I mean, traditionally because of for taxation reasons, uh, you know, a lot of officers would retire at the start of the new tax year, which is next month. So we, we that that number could be could be potentially another hundred down uh, in in a few weeks' time. And I say the issue, the major issue, coming up, spinning off, having no budget, as I previously mentioned is we have no recruitment at present. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to start that recruitment drive again will, will take time. So uh, in other words, the, the new people coming in aren't replacing the people that are leaving. So that number is and unfortunately receiving at a, a quite rapid rate. I mean, PS and I have modeled this that, that if, if things don't change, uh, we could be down as, as, as low as 6,000 officers by, by the end of 2024, um, which is, you know, when, when I first joined the police in, in 1994, um, when you know we had over, uh, including uh, part-time officers and reserve officers, we had over thirteen thousand police officers. So when we were less than half of that, um, without any primarily, you know, front-facing military support anymore around that. Um, and again, it's 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 not enough, uh, and that's the reality. It is not enough. Yeah, what would six thousand officers mean? Would you be able to provide a service? Uh, well, I, yeah, I think we'll still be able to provide a service, but we'll not be able to provide as good a service. Uh, and the reality around having reduced numbers is, you know, um, the ability to respond uh, in a in a timely manner. So what it could be was that things will sl- things would have to slow down because you've less people dealing with stuff. And then the, the other consequence of having less people, if you're asking, you know, uh, less people to do more. That, that can bring us challenges as well in, in relation to uh, sickness and, and people making mistakes and, and other things. So, the, I mean, the, the reality around it is, is, is PS and I have went through a process of, of, of what's called recalibration of principally what they're doing and trying to ring fence certain areas of, of, of you know, what are termed their, their service profile. Now, what that means is, for example, if somebody dies 999, uh, you will get a police response uh, in a timely manner. If someone dies, uh, the 101 number, the non-emergency number, mm-hmm. it may well be that police aren't coming out to you at all. Uh, they may just get a crime reference number and that's that's the end of it. Or it may well be that they could come out with you in a, in a, you know, a couple of days' time. And, and sort of the, So the reality is the service that our, our population have been used to over a period of time will significantly look different if, if we don't have proper investment into the police and they enable us to resource in those areas of, of concern uh, as best we can. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, 
indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina, and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music, and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie, and Wrightsville, and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Did I read somewhere or within the last couple of weeks or maybe maybe the last couple of months the chief constable announced that because of the reduced numbers there'd be fewer detectives? That's, that's correct. We're, we're already in that, in that mix. Um, uh, we had a, there was a, the chief constable gave a briefing to the organisation and then to the public uh, in February and basically laid that out in stark terms in, in the here and now. Now the, the issue with the here and now, I mean I'll give you some some figures on this. Um, one of the things that he had ring-fenced was uh, our neighbourhood policing and that you know initial community interaction. Now, he, he had said that he wanted to maintain that at its current level. Um, unfortunately, we have had people retiring, uh, you know, resigning and leaving. So that number actually reduced by 75, uh, even though he had protected it. The detectives was 96. He had 96 less detectives, uh, you know, almost immediately. There was 97 fewer officers in, in providing what's called the specialist support. Uh, so what you mean? What I mean by that is specialist search or our public order units uh, reduced, and also uh, you know as part of the administration support we have, we had 115 less police staff. So that was a snapshot of the here and now in in uh, February. The the issue that uh, the primary issue that I had because the budget that we were being told we were going to get in 2023 2024 was at, at least 100 million pounds less than we needed. Uh, and in fact, they've been asked to model another 10 and 15 percent on top of that. So that figure with uh, you know, pressure and utilities and uh, uh, pay awards and other things, that figure is now you know, in around 176 million pounds um, and 160 million pounds when we're in the headcount at the moment to try and save money, you know, it equates to you know, 500 police officers having to you know, are not being replaced. Uh, and that's just unsustainable. So those numbers will, will get worse. And that's the thing about protecting your resource. Uh, police still have to be able to respond to, to, to you know, that treble nine calls, the serious road traffic collisions, the day-to-day the -day business that officers have to do. Those specialist investigations uh, also require resource uh, as well to, make, to maintain them and get them done. Uh, and the, the issue that we have is without that investment, our, 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 our response officers are of today are, are our detectives of tomorrow. And, and at that um, conveyor belt is turned off, then what we have is a diminishing resource, uh, you know, and not able to retain. The other thing around it as well is retention of experience. Um, there, you know, once a police officer gets to the point where they can retire, they, they can be, you know, forced to stay at work. Uh, you know, they can go, they can go. Uh, and it's, it's getting that it's getting that balance uh, that's, that's going to be required. And I say we're, we're waiting on the uh, Chancellor's budget, um, uh, which is tomorrow. And then we'll see what the Northern Ireland budget, because they, obviously Westminster are managing uh, the, the Northern Ireland budget in the absence of having a stormant government. So they will set the budget for Northern Ireland. Um, yeah. And we'll be looking at it very, very closely to see what the allocation, or additional allocation of any, is going to be allocated to PSNI. Just as a matter of interest, guards uh, get entitled to their pension after 30 years service. Would that be the same in the PSNI? No, it, it, it's changed. Um, in, in 2015, there, there was a, a new pension scheme 
um, was brought in. Uh, the new pension scheme doesn't work on uh, works now on age uh, and not on service. So primarily, uh, you know, prior to that, yes, that that was the case. It was a, a you know a thirty year career when that was the maximum pension you could get would be over thirty years pensionable service. It's now changed to uh, the minimum uh, someone can retire is now age fifty five, uh, but uh, that that's on a reduced pension. Uh, the the actual age the retirement age is now sixty. So what that means, for example, if you have an 18-year-old joiner, they have to work for 42 years before they can get a full pension or 37 years before they can get a reduced pension. Uh, so the financial incentive would obviously be to work to 60. God, that's interesting you mentioned 2015 because in 2013 there were major changes to the Garda pension scheme and that's one of the issues that is causing real problems with retention. Obviously a change for the worst members on the ground would say. So it's just amazing. Obviously it was austerity or whatever, but it just had a significant effect because people think it's not worth staying for their pension after that length of time. And one, of the, one of the issues is that one of the things for me is, you know, police has become um, like any major business. Uh, and whereas it used to be there was more people were joining on a vocational capacity. Albeit, yes, there was good pension and there was good remuneration for it. But what we seem to find now, particularly with the newer, uh, the younger generation of things, is policing is a stepping stone um, to doing something else. Uh, so they're not, they're not coming into work. Uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, they're coming in primarily to work five years or 10 years and then move on to something else. And, and that's sort of an unintended consequence as well for, for you know, new PSNI officers coming in. They, they get a qualification accredited at the University of Ulster. So it's, a, it's something tangible that they can bring with them. Uh, whereas when I first joined the police, your qualifications just qualified you to be in the police as opposed to qualify to do something else. So uh, that, that, that's an incentive for people to do that they can get a university qualification uh, as a student officer and then they can cho- choose to use the, the benefits of having that in, in another employment. And there's no doubt, it's funny you mentioned five years because a, a former member was saying this to me, American multinationals especially love at least five years law enforcement experience on your CV. So it looks really, really good. So you can see why people would, it would be, the grass would be greener on the other side. It's just, as I say, it's, a, it's now, a, we're now seeing the, the, the the, the millennials, uh, Generation Z, coming through of, of things. So you have a different mindset that the, what the working mentality is of stuff. So, uh, you know, quite happy to change careers quite quickly, quite happy to have new experiences and, and, and do things. And, and again, unfortunately, the way, uh, uh, you know, policing is looking to retain people as much as they can because there's heavy investment in, in bringing people in and getting them up to the standard that they need to be at. And then, unfortunately, say we're seeing people leaving, uh, you know, in that in those early days. But that comes back to the, the remuneration question again. You know, prior to prior to our uh, delayed pay award this year, it was taking a, it was taking a police officer five years before they were earning thirty thousand pounds a year. Uh, and, and with the austerity and the cost of living crisis, you know, people were earning that sort of money uh, doing other jobs where the risks and, and other things just weren't there. And what I mean by that was even delivery drivers or you know, working in retail or, or driving lorries or doing other things that they can they can balance themselves uh, as opposed to, you know, technically putting their lives on the line on a day and daily basis uh, for, for what was termed not, not a great return. Well, that, that's actually a, an interesting question. Can you roughly, I know every officer is different, but roughly, what would the average salary be for a PSNI officer? What are we talking? Well, that's the, that's the difficulty because of, of different pay scales and where mm. you are. So, I mean, as, as I said, the vast majority of our officers are constable rank. Uh, you know, over over five thousand of our officers are of constable rank. So, if you aggregate their salary, uh, the top salary for a constable would be forty three thousand. 
at the bottom salary as a, as a student officer is currently 23,000. So you do the rough maths and that you're sort of in, in the mid sort of 34, 35,000 pounds would be the, the, the mean average. And would that be take home pay or would there be a unit, would there be overtime and allowances? And oh, no, that's, that's, that's gross, that's gross salary. So, I mean, one of the things is we, we pay, um, uh, for a constable, uh, they pay almost 13% of their salary on pension, uh, on a pension payment. Uh, and then when you factor in all your other bits and pieces and, and things that you do, taxation, national insurance, all the rest. So, I mean, what, what we were finding was the, the take home pay, for example, for a, a probationer officer. So that's somebody with sort of two, you know, up to two years service. Uh, their take-home salary uh, net uh, was, was in around uh, £1,500 a month. Wow. Now, the reason I was asking about that is I've got a series of questions because I'm looking at it through the prism of it's not normal policing. Unfortunately, being a police officer in Northern Ireland is probably unique in Western Europe, you know, because of the, the terrorists. So I've just got a few questions, some things that have always interested me. And we sort of touched on this. Do PSNI officers, I know they used to because... The classic thing when I was growing up and I went to school at a place called St Malachy's in Belfast, which was which was quite an eclectic mix. But there would have been people there whose fathers were police officers and mothers were police officers. And one of the things that was always said, it's always a bit of a joke. If anybody told you they were a civil servant, you probably had a good suspicion that they were a police officer. Would that be the same now? Do they have to hide their, their job? Uh, unfortunately, as I say, and that's one of the, the things that, that's really frustrating. You know, of the 25 years post Good Friday Agreement, yes, we we, we still have to take security precautions, uh, particularly in that off-duty capacity. And yeah, that, I mean, that's a sort of standing joke when you're getting car insurance and things. They ask you if you're a civil servant. And then there was a, an additional question to that. Were you clerical or non-clerical? Um, because if you're non-clerical, that means you're a police officer. And, and that's, right. that's the reality. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a sad indictment on, on our society that at, at times our, our officers can't can celebrate and, and are, can't show that external pride about, about what they're doing, what their occupation is, because of primarily the the, the, you know, the personal issue that that could, that could bring to them. So it's, uh, it's, it's sad that we're still, we're still in that environment. Now, I know you, you mentioned you joined the uh, RUC in 1994. One of the things that we always remember growing up, and people in the Republic probably just wouldn't get this, it was even hard for P- for RUC officers to hang their shirts up outside drying because they were they were green and they were quite unique. So they stood out. So any anybody coming along could have said, "Oh, that's a police officer's house." So that shows you how far it drills down. Well, that's right. I mean, and, and the the uniform you're you're quite right. The uniform for the constables and the sergeants was a green uh, a green shirt, quite a, a high visibility green shirt. Yeah. An inspector and above, they had a white shirt. Uh, you know, we've, we've moved in relation to the shirts now. We've moved away, and uh, everyone wears a white shirt. Um, but uh, there's also a response uniform, a, a Wiccan uniform, which is PSNI crest and all sorts of. And the reality is, yeah, unfortunately, uh, we still find that that police officers, uh, you know, can't can't hang the, the clothes out on the line and, and fear that they could be identified with what they do. So all these questions really are. I'm just trying to give a perspective that Guardy on the ground can see what it's like. Would officers still have to? I think he mentioned this. Would they still have to check under their car for booby traps? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and again, we get uh, security briefs and uh, and the and reminders in the workplace uh, to do that and not be complacent. Because uh, as I say, and as I said at the start, the terrorists look for complacency and, and they look for patterns. So uh, the reality is, and the term that people would use, you have to get the knees wet today. Because what that means is obviously it's not just a, a visual check as you sort of walk towards your car. You actually have to physically get down and have a look. And it used to be, and it's, it's funny because I was listening to a, a podcast the other day where people were talking about 
um, uh, doing that and trying to explain and hide their occupation from their children. And one of the things they would say would be, for example, they're checking under the car to make sure there's no cat under it, you know, when they're driving up. So, in other words, just to normalize it, really. Uh, that, that that's what it is. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've had a, we've had a couple of undercar booby traps in the last few years on officers, both outside of workplace and in fact at, at their home addresses for things. So that that you know acts as a stark reminder. Um, that the the officers should continue to do that because if if they don't, the time that they uh, one of these things around it is the terrorist only has to be lucky once. The police officer has to be lucky every time. Uh, so 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 don't give them the opportunity. Have a look. And what about socialising? I mean, well, we mentioned the, the previous, the last three RUC officers been to be murdered and two uh, PSNI officers were murdered, Stephen Carroll and Ronan Kerr. But I think the fourth last officer I remember covering this was a man called Darren Bradshaw. who was now, he, he was killed in a gay bar. It's no, it's no secret. He was, you know, that's where he was killed. It was near where I worked in, in Belfast. Do, do officers have to be careful where they socialise? Yeah, absolutely. They do. Uh, and again, that's come back about getting patterns. And unfortunately, in, in Darren's case, uh, at the time, you know, the LGBT uh, which were sort of a reduced number of, of areas where they could socialise and, and that became the vulnerability for him uh, in that, uh, you know, recognising that he would go to a particular bar at particular times and he wouldn't be armed uh, as well, which would make him, a, make him an easy target. So, yeah, again, that, that's all part of the, the, the off-duty um, stresses and strains that, that are on police officers every day about, about where do they go, where do they socialise, and again, that feeds into that, that that terrorist narrative as well of trying to be exclusionary and trying to not let police have the normal life that everyone else in society has. So it's just a matter of balance. It doesn't mean you should adapt your behaviour completely to be completely risk averse. What it means is you should try and, and, and well, mix it up a bit where, where possible uh, and, and be careful uh, about certain particular patterns. And what about where officers live? When I grew up, officers mostly lived in either Protestant areas or mostly Protestant areas. Would that be the case now? I mean, I, look, I, I moved away in 97, so I wouldn't be that d- drilled deep down about the communities now, but can PSNI officers live in Catholic, nationalist, Republican areas? Well, they, well they, there's nothing to say that they can't. Uh, however, the, the reality around it is, uh, is, is that, that creates a vulnerability, both for them and their families, because primarily that's where the support base and, and where some of these uh, dissident terrorist groups are still masquerading and still have influence so from a from a personal safety point of view uh, police officers generally would would not live uh, in the areas where they where they grew up uh, and that can be loyalist or nationalist it's not specific just to the uh, to the nationalist community uh, and again as you mentioned there uh, the uh, you know, some of the estates and, and some of the areas maybe wouldn't be deemed uh, a, a safe place for police officers to live. So they therefore move towards the what's termed the hinterland uh, on the on the outskirts of, of major cities and other things. And that's that's where they would live. And, and you've got pockets of that, that, as you quite rightly identified, around Northern Ireland, where police officers feel it's safe for them to live. But that also comes at a cost uh, as well. You know, we talk about affordable housing and things, particularly for those junior officers. And it's expensive at the moment to get a mortgage. It's expensive to get rent. And, and again, that has its own pressures as well. And that feeds into that narrative, again, of, of officers not having, you know, the job isn't, isn't paying them enough to live. Uh, and then, therefore, they look for something that, you know, where they can live uh, back in the areas where they originally came from and uh, because they, they haven't got, a you know, what's perceived as a target on their back anymore because they're not doing the job that some people don't want them to do. What I'm getting from this is... PSN officers have exactly the same stresses and problems and benefits and positives that Gardaí have. 
But on top of that, they have the abnormal threat that is constant. I mean, is it? it's not even probably in the back of their heads. It's probably now at the forefront. And I'm just really interested how, you know, people cope with that. You know, because policing is a, is a tough job and you've got this extra layer of danger in the north. Yeah. I, I, and a lot, I'm not saying it, it is difficult. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And I say somebody, um, somebody like myself, who's, who's uh, it was sort of that was sort of the norm when when I first came into policing. Um, you know, can remember uh, at the outset of my career that sort of fear factor and and the sort of behaviours that I was having to exhibit um, to, to to protect myself from my family. That that was the reality. I say not unfortunately, but you know, over over a period of time, there, there's no doubt about it that uh, police officers have have benefited from the, you know, not the, the imperfect peace that, that we've had in Northern Ireland, and have been able to to be, become and get involved in more normalised behaviour. But as I say, this is a stark reminder to them again that that, that they they unfortunately are are still a, a legitimate or deemed a legitimate target by by these people. Uh, so they they just need to be very very careful um, about doing that. Do you think, we sort of alluded to this earlier, do you think there will be more uh, situations where officers are armed off duty? They carry their, their personal protection weapons off duty? Well, officers officers are issued with a personal protection weapon and have been uh, right throughout the, the history of the, the PSNI from 2001. That's because of the threat level in Northern Ireland up until last year was still created as severe. It's now, say, now substantial, which means an attack is, highly, is, is likely. Uh, on an officer, so it's still quite a high bar. So yes, that, that's the organisation, you know, exercising its duty of care of the officers to say that you need to have this weapon both on and off duty. Uh, and it's an officer's choice whether they, they carry their weapon off duty. I would say in, in light of the events that's happened in the last few weeks, there's certainly it would be more officers now would be carrying their firearms off duty. Now you mentioned there was a sinister threat. It didn't come from the new IRA. It came from a, another distant Republican group called Arm the Public. And now this was... I think it was unique because I can't really remember. Obviously, there are threats issued against police officers infrequently, I suppose, but this was against relatives of police officers. Is that a new, is that a new direction? It was in a, in, a, in a worrying direction. I think before that, you know, police officers and their families, well, their families particularly knew that if, they, if, they, if there was going to be a t- an attack directed at the officer, more likely than not, that family members would become what we could be termed collateral damage. Uh, and that's what I mean by that is, for example, if you put an under a car, if you trap under a, a vehicle, if an officer's taking children to school or, or you know, giving their partner a, a lift somewhere, then they're in that vehicle and, and the terrorist has no mechanism of, of stopping what that, that has happened. So and in a sense, it's always been there. But, but this one here was was was, was particularly sickening um, because, you know, basically saying that, you know, trying to, to drive that wedge, not only in the... Uh, you know, in the officer from society, but actually trying to drive a wedge and within their own families and saying to people, well, if you're supporting this officer and doing their job for society, then you become that legitimate target and not the officer. Uh, I mean, that's sick. Uh, and that's quite rightly been, been called out by, by, by almost everyone in society as, as completely unacceptable. Would you think that that was aimed specifically at police officers from the Catholic community? Uh, no, I think it was it was aimed at all police officers. Uh, again, I, I don't think there's a you could term it as there a hierarchy of victims in this scenario. You know, do the would the dissident Republican groups like to target police Catholic police officers more than Protestant potentially for for their own propaganda purposes? I mean, we've seen that with Pater Heffron mm-hmm. uh, when he when he had been specifically targeted because he was the a sort of high profile um, uh, you know GAA player, um, a Gaelic speaker. 
uh, and uh, unfortunately, that 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 they, they had targeted him specifically. But no, that this this applies to all police officers, irrespective. Again, it's the fact that they wear a uniform; their their religion is irrelevant. You see, what I'm getting at there is obviously, I think from memory, the, the number of Catholic police officers in the in the RUC was roughly around six or seven percent. Now that has increased substantially. I think it's is it. 27% something like or 32% of Catholics so it, it's it's gone up significantly but if they force I mean the end game I would from outside perspective if they force they know this threat and that forces some Catholics to rethink or to leave then the Republicans or the distant Republicans can say look this police force does not represent the Catholic people so that would lead to a diminution of Catholics joining so you know what I'm saying there that, that might be one strategy just to widen the gulf shall we say yeah and it's, it's yeah it's, it's an unfortunate thing as, and I mean it, it's around particularly what we talked about earlier there this is this is not only a problem for for PSNI and, and, and the RUC as well and we never really had a problem in retract, attracting people who wanted to be police officers. The problem was retaining them, and the problem was having that. Um, I mean, a, a Catholic officer when I when I joined as well, when, when a Catholic officer joined the police, it basically meant that they um, firstly couldn't declare, you know, what they were doing. Their families, more than the north, along with them, had to move from particular areas to enable them to do that. So there was a lot of upheaval in that. And I say that this is a, needs a societal change more than just, and the PS and I are, part, are definitely part of that discussion. So yeah, I mean, there, we, we went through the 50-50 recruitment as part of the patent reforms to try and address that that number. But but the reality around it is, is unfortunately, we still have police officers being, uh, and their families, or, or the police career being targeted by terrorists. And, and this is just another example of that, of trying to, you know, to scare people or put people in fear that if they join the police, they and their families will be subject to, you know, targets, threats and intimidation. Right, Liam, last question. And I want to thank you for coming on. I think you've given a really great insight for people outside Northern Ireland, what's it like being a police officer in the North? And I think, you know, it's been a real eye But just one last question. Obviously, you've spoken about the shock, but are officers defiant after the attempt on DCI Caldwell? I mean, are they being caught or they're saying, no, we're not going to let this affect us. We're going to do our job still. Uh, I mean, it made them, it definitely made them more resilient uh, around what, um, you know, what their values, what their behaviours were in relation to being a police officer. It was a, it was a reminder to them that, you know, we are we are cops and it's what we do. Uh, and again, as, as I said, anecdotally around this, on the evening of that attack, we had an, an inspiring number of off-duty officers putting themselves forward to come on duty to do something. They assist support their colleagues uh, who were involved in that. Uh, and again, that's something I haven't seen in a, in a, in a long, long time. Uh, so it's important to say that it was an important and unfortunate incident, but an important reminder to police officers about the, the stark reality. And we've had this before about saying that there's three communities in Northern Ireland. You've got Protestant, Catholic and the police uh, and the police are somewhere in between uh, that. The police family is strong and resilient uh, and, and things like this here don't deter us from what we do. It encourages and makes us more resilient to do better going forward and also to you know have that community uh, support. Uh, that they can be, have confidence in, in, in what we're doing uh, and ensure and give us the information and evidence that results in people who carry out acts such as that attempted murder of John Caldwell uh, to give us the evidence, put them before the courts and put them behind bars as just where they belong. Lib, thanks very much. Uh, and I know that an awful lot of Gardaí know Detective Chief Inspector Caldwell and everybody is praying that he makes a, a recovery from his injuries. Yeah, thank you very much.